We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. And by Dimitri Budas of TVBS News. Hi there. Tonight we'll be discussing the government reacting with dismay at comments by former President Ma ying during his visit to the United States. Claims that the completion of negotiations on an investment pact between Taiwan and Canada could help Taiwan join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. DPP lawmaker Chao Tianlin admitting to having an affair with a Chinese national, which has led to calls for national security investigations into the matter. And the government launching an anti-fraud shortcode SMS platform. But we will begin with China's Taiwan Affairs Office on Wednesday, warning Taiwanese companies operating there that they need to assume their social responsibilities and play a positive role in promoting cross-strait ties. The statement comes as authorities in China have reportedly launched a tax and land use investigation into Honhai's operations there. The Chinese government, though, has not officially confirmed those investigations, but speaking to reporters in Beijing, Taiwan Affairs Office spokeswoman Zhu Fanglian said China's policy of respecting, caring for and benefiting people from Taiwan will not change. Ju went on to say that the government will always support Taiwanese businessmen and companies to invest and create a good environment for their development. However, she also signalled that China expects such companies to pay a political role, saying that Taiwan enterprises should also assume corresponding social responsibilities and play a positive role in promoting the peaceful development of cross-strait relations. Here in Taiwan, needless to say, government officials, well, they took a rather opposite view of the Honhai investigations and Vice President and DPP presidential candidate William Lai called on Beijing to cease pressuring Taiwanese businesses into declaring their political positions ahead of January's election. Lai said that Honhai should be given nationwide support here in Taiwan and Taiwanese businesses making significant contributions to China's economy should be cherished and protected by Beijing. The DPP also slammed the investigation into Honhai, issuing a statement accusing China of opening politically motivated probes to pressure Honhai High founder Terry Gore into abandoning his independent bid for the presidency. Now, according to the DPP, Beijing's seeking to pressure Gore into dropping out of the race is aimed at giving the KMT and the Taiwan People's Party a better chance of winning the election. Gore, though, hasn't commented on the investigation into the company that he founded, but his campaign team has been stressing that he no longer is involved in the company's day-to-day operations, but he remains a major shareholder. So, Ross, we've got China not saying anything about the investigations, but saying that Taiwanese companies should cherish working in China and play a political, not a political, they mean political, no doubt, but a social responsibility when they're there. Using uh, audits uh, against Taiwan companies as a way to show displeasure against either the company or Taiwan in general is is not new. And it's one of the tools that China has to advance its own uh, policies with regard to Taiwan, just like uh, persuading countries to de-recognize Taiwan, military exercises, uh, taking a very strict view at Taiwan's participation in international organizations, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not new, nor is it a surprise. Uh, as you mentioned, it's a fact that Terry Goh is not involved in the day-to-day operations of the company. Uh, he's no longer a board member either, although he's a major shareholder. Uh, I don't see how this by itself would prompt Go to abandon his presidential campaign. I think the only thing that would prompt him to abandon his presidential campaign is if uh, the TPP and the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, uh, reach an agreement on a joint ticket, and then Go decides to be a team player in the interest of beating uh, William Lai of the DPP. 
Well, for sure, it's odd that China would investigate a businessman crucial to its economic success. And speaking of business, the independent candidate in Taiwan's presidential election believes we actually should reopen talks with China to ease tensions. Terry Go also advocates for strong defense, but emphasized the need to grow business ties with China if necessary to uplift Taiwan's economy. However, there is a twist. His opponents often label him as pro-China, so this investigation could actually also work into his advantage, portraying him as a businessman unafraid of to, to stand up to China. It, uh, yeah, the, uh, the odd thing in all of this, of course, is that Terry Go is, is a, a supporter of better relations with China, he supports the 92 consensus. His policies towards China are more in line with what China wants to see out of Taiwan. And his policy is completely opposite of the the current government and uh, future government of William Lai, should William Lai win the election. So that's kind of, uh, you know, th- this is one of those situations where uh, we have very odd partnerships forming. You know, the idea of uh, the DPP or William Lai uh, or the government, whoever it happens to be the spokesperson of the moment on this issue, uh, sort of supporting greater investment in China by Taiwan companies and saying what a great thing it is. It certainly is. Uh, you know, it proves, again, that old old statement that politics makes for strange bedfellows. But, Ross, I mean, do you think this is aimed at the election? It's hard to say. Uh, again, if it's aimed at the election, I, I don't see it as a particularly effective method of prompting Go to to uh, abandon his presidential campaign. Because again, I think the the most uh, powerful tool would be if there, there's a agreement on, on a coalition, uh, whether that's Go and 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 Ho or Go and Ke or Ho and Ke, and then Go just joins along in, in the interest of beating uh, William Lai. So. Again, I, I'm not. I mean, we're not. We're, we can never say for certain what are the motivations for this. We do know that audits of Taiwan, as well as foreign companies, are. Uh, this is not new. It's one of the risks that exist with doing business in China. And uh, there were business leaders here in Taiwan in, in 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 the hours or days after this news was was made public that said, "Hey, this this happens in China. We're used to it." Uh, so I'm inclined to to go along with that view. Uh, it could also be simply because. China wants to send a message to to Foxconn Honhai. You know, we're not so thrilled about your recent announcements about your investments in Vietnam and and in, in India. We want you to stay here in China and keep expanding in China. So it might also be uh, that that aspect might be one of the motivations for this, and not the election. And Ross, of course, there's been allegations this week that China is also once again paying for tickets for people to come back and vote. That happens with every election cycle. And then after the election is over, we learn that it didn't happen in any large, significant numbers. It was basically a, a scare tactic by uh, opponents of the Nationalist Party. Uh, you know, sometimes there, there's there's middle layers, right? So uh, some kind of subsidy payment might go to business persons associations in, in Taiwan, and then they, in turn, offer discounted plane tickets. But uh, you know, another way to look at this is uh, the airlines could refuse to pay the, you know, refuse travel for people who are using the quote-unquote red ticket uh, to fly back to Taiwan. But, but again, ultimately, uh, at least recent experience, recent election cycle experiences, the number of people who fly back is, is frankly, it's, it's de minimis. It's never been enough to make a difference, not even close to making a difference in an election uh, or who wins or who loses well 
there've been many attempts to influence elections, but they've mostly backfired, as you say, turning public opinion against them. Now, the fear is a new Taiwan's leaders have consistently warned that China wants to change how people in Taiwan think. Yet it's worth noting that the claim China will secretly fund candidates or help candidates who favor Beijing is also a common tactic used to discredit uh, political opponents uh, uh, during the campaign. So maybe we should let's hold off on, on judgment until after the election to see if Beijing's strategy actually works. Because we have to remember that time flies at a different pace in Taiwan and China. I don't know if you remember that China also investigated the Alibaba's group founder Jack Ma in 2020. So it's really too early to discuss the real motives behind this investigation. And what's the threat question at you here? Because, of course, we're talking about China meddling in the election. There have also been complaints, allegations, speculation and talk of China actually investing in television programmes here in Taiwan, where political pundits are paid a bit of wedge to say how gorgeous Beijing is at this time of year. Well, this is similar to other aspects of, ele- uh, other aspects of allegations related to election interference. Uh, Taiwan media outlets that are not friendly to the government uh, receiving money from China. This is not a new accusation. Uh, if it's true, then people should be prosecuted and sent to jail if they violated any laws. But it, it's often just accusation without any proof and, and uh, just becomes part of the political discussion. But uh, ultimately, it doesn't seem to affect an election. You know, there were so many allegations about media being pro-China or, uh, or certain politicians being pro-China in the 2020 presidential and legislative election cycle. What happened? The DPP won a smashing victory. So if, if China really was doing that in the 2020 election cycle, then they're doing it in a, in a dreadfully poor way. Everybody should lose their job because Tsai Ing-wen was re-elected with 57% of the vote. So if they were, if China was interfering in the election, like I said, they sure did a terrible job. And Dimitri, let's shoot back to the possible electoral pact between the KMT and the TPP there. I mean, obviously this week, the KMT yesterday, in fact, said they're now going to hold party-to-party negotiations on the issue. That, two weeks after the original sort of party member to party member negotiations went nowhere. Yeah, the, the Coenger also said that he's still open to discussions. Now, the format of the discussions, the goals and the, how would they share the cake? They haven't put this on the table yet. So um, I guess they've wait and they've been waiting to see the latest polls to see if one candidate, especially Coenger, could just move on with his election campaign without uh, without the KMT. Uh, but it's obviously ob- obvious now that he will need and the opposition parties will need to collaborate somehow and find grounds in order to win this election. And Ross, interesting headline in yesterday's China Times newspaper, I believe it was the China Times, that said... Basically, well, Kerr and Jer and Ho Yowie could run on the same ticket. Ho would run as president, Kerr would run as vice president. And then after he gets the job as vice president, he could resign and become premier. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. Um, it's theoretically possible. I, I don't think it's uh, entirely uh 
upfront way to deal with the voters. It's kind of a bit disrespectful to the voters. You say, I'm running for vice president. I really want to be your vice president. And then, you know, a minute after inauguration next May, you say, I'm resigning to be the premier. But if they really want to go in that direction, then they might as well make an agreement now that uh, Co drops his presidential campaign and and they have a written agreement that they tell the voters that uh, Ho and whoever is the running mate, should they win, then uh, the, the TPP's Ke gets to become the premier and the TPP gets to uh, nominate uh, for the following ministries and the Kuomintang will get to nominate uh, the, the minister for the remaining ministries. So it's it's probably more fanciful uh, than than actual uh, something that they're actually discussing. I, I just find it too far fetched. And I asked my guests on the show last week if they thought this pact was going to come to fruition. And Dimitri, do you believe that this pact will come to fruition or simply be flushed down the toilet? Well, the the pressure will keep increasing. Uh, we're still three months uh, ahead of the election. Uh, as uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, supporters from both parties, but also supporters from uh, Terry Go, will be asking uh, how we're going to solve this issue. Uh, as you mentioned, for the uh, former uh, the, the vice the former um, vice president is actually the premier now. So I think everything is possible. It's now they have to sit on the same table and discuss. If they don't, they will need to explain uh, to their supporters uh, in January after the election why they failed in this election because they could just couldn't cut a deal. I don't see them doing that, though, Ross. My guests last week agreed that if the DPP wins the election because the opposition parties failed to come to any agreement... Hoyoe, Kerwenger and Terry Gwar will not be blaming, well, might be blaming each other rather than themselves. Well, at least for Hoyoe, he has the fallback. He's still going to be mayor for a couple more years until the next local election in, in uh, at the year, year, year end 2026. They're running out of time. You know, if they really want to do this, uh, we're already you know, less than 90 days, correct me if I'm wrong, Gavin, to the election, to voting day. They better make up their minds. And like I, I, I said a few minutes ago, it's not just a question of who would be the president, who would be the vice president. There's also this issue of how you would allocate uh, the different ministerial and other government posts. And there are a lot of government posts. There are a lot of government control companies as well, where who's ever in power gets to send their own, uh, if you want to be rude, call them party hacks. Um, you know, They get to send their own people to... You know, the, Taiwan has a big state, state-owned uh, economy still. Uh, so they have to work all that out. And they haven't done so by now. I'm not optimistic that they're going to make a deal soon. They really better do so quickly if they think they can make a deal. Moving on now, and former President Ma Ying-jeou has been getting under the government's skin in recent days during a trip to the United States, where he's been meeting with think tanks, non-profits, journalists and attending forums. He kicked off his trip in New York before popping off to Washington, D.C. Now he spoke at a symposium hosted by the New York University Law School, where he reportedly said, because apparently this is not being verified that he actually said it, it's only been reported that he might have said it, and we're going to paraphrase it, that Taiwan and China are not separate countries like Ukraine and Russia, and he also accused some US political figures of trying to weaponise Taiwan and time the island into a battlefield like Ukraine. He then visited the National Committee on US-China Relations, where he described January's presidential election here as being a choice between war and peace, and he then went on to call on the government to adhere to the 1990 
2022 consensus and said the US should not encourage Taiwan's leaders to move toward independence or even make Taiwan a second Ukraine. And he went on to say Washington should instead help facilitate peaceful cross-strait dialogue. He then popped off to Washington, D.C., where he held two separate seminars at the Brookings Institution and the Heritage Foundation. There, he urged the U.S. government to remain neutral on Taiwan and to encourage dialogue between Beijing and Taipei. And he also called on Washington to basically, well, maybe push the Taiwan government to accept the 1992 consensus. All of that, needless to say, sent Foreign Minister Joseph Wu into a bit of a twirl, and he accused Ma of undermining Taiwan's diplomacy and attacking its allies. Now, according to the Foreign Minister, he believes important Taiwanese political figures have a responsibility to rally foreign countries' support for Taiwan, and the former president failed to do so. The Foreign Minister went on to say that the government deeply regrets Ma's behaviour of a visiting foreign country person to cast aspersions on the people who support Taiwan in said country. And he went on to say that Taiwan's high-ranking officials follow the rule of leaving domestic politics at home when going overseas or trying to better represent Taiwan's interests. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs also issued a statement expressing its profound disappointment at Ma's comments, accusing him of attacking the democratically elected government and the nation's staunch international supporters. So, Ross, Mr Ma goes to Washington, says basically what you know he's going to say, and, of course, the government say exactly what you think they're going to say. I, I think you described it quite well. Buying Joe's positions on Taiwan-China uh, relations or legal status, et cetera, et cetera, are, are well known. Whether he says it while he's president or in post-presidency, whether he says it in Taiwan or he says it overseas. So he didn't say anything new. He didn't surprise us with how he framed the relationship uh, uh, he thinks his presidency, uh, his two terms, and how he approached uh, bilateral relations and interactions are the correct path forward. He's entitled to have that view. On the other hand, uh, his view is you know, diametrically opposite of what the government's view is. And some of those organizations he, he met with, the ones that you mentioned, the National Council on U.S.-China Relations, I mean, that, that's an organization that uh, is pretty much the go-along to get-along with China uh, group, uh, business, you know, big business backs them. Um, so he probably found a receptive audience there. Uh, Heritage and, and Brookings receive funding either directly or indirectly from the Taiwan government. Uh, that's not really a receptive audience. So uh, instead of saying Ma was brave to go to an unreceptive audience, I, I think he was just wasting his time. Right. So if you're, you're going to speak in front of scholars who are, are uh, not very friendly to China at the moment, and then you say, let's be friendly to China, uh, you know, they might politely clap. I'm sure they politely clapped and smiled. But when he left, they probably called up uh, the Taiwan representative office in Washington and said, my gosh, pre former President Ma is nuts. Uh, so I, I'm not really sure what the outcome that Ma wanted uh, from this trip. Uh, you know, he also brought young people with him, just like he did when he went to, to China. So that seems to be his thing now. He likes to take groups of young people and expose them to... Uh, policymaking uh, people outside of Taiwan uh, or scholars outside of Taiwan. Uh, but frankly, I'm not sure what the point of this whole exercise was. Well, yes, the, the format was interesting. Right? Okay, the, the agency's reaction indicate that mass criticism have touched, I think, a nerve, and they got pretty pissed. 
but it's it's interesting how you can in the same sentence you can hit back at the former elected official and at the same time claiming that Taiwan is a democracy because he shared an opinion which is nothing as you mentioned is just nothing new uh what what president ma said he had said it already many times and it wasn't new but for government officials or uh officials appointed by elected officials i think as a former elected president he has the right to share his opinion and if we are against that now uh what's the point in claiming and time and again that we are better uh, than the other side of the taiwan strait now both agencies criticize ma for his support of the 1992 consensus which is not new i mean it said it so many times already so Yes, uh, I'm not surprised by the uh, what the president, the former president, said, but I was pretty surprised by the strong reaction from uh, government agencies in Taiwan. I, I'm surprised that they would say we we leave domestic politics at the door when we go abroad because uh, please, DPP, when you were in opposition, you know, during the Ma presidency, and you would go to Washington, uh, whether it was. Tsai Ing-wen or other DPP officials. And by gosh, the DPP has its own representative office in Washington, D.C. What, what, what are they doing there? They're politicking. Uh, they're probably saying the other side is bad. We're good. Uh, so uh, to say that we leave our domestic politics uh, at the door when, when we go abroad, I mean, that's just not true. To think maybe the foreign minister, Ross, should have kept Sturman sort of nodding and gone, Mine Joe is free to say what he wants. That, that, that would have been a good strategy as well. And you could take it a step further. You could say, if you like what Ma said, you'll vote for the Gobi dog uh, in the upcoming election. We have something different. And the voters have endorsed us two times in 2016 and 2020. And we hope they endorse us again in, in 2024. But, Dimitri, I mean, do you think the public is listening to what Ma says? The public here in Taiwan is listening to what Ma says in America? Or it's a bit of a waste of a reporter's job to be reporting what he says in America in Taiwan? Well, it's never a waste, but uh, supporters, mind your supporters in Taiwan, they're were very happy about seeing him in the United States and sharing his views about cross-race relations. So it's very important for them, but uh, obviously he has less supporters. I mean, uh, his way in uh, Taiwan politics is uh, uh, much lighter than it was, so... Uh, by by criticizing so um, and using those strong words against him, you're actually giving more media exposure than he had. Uh, it was supposed to have. Do you know how many maybe how many news outlets send reporters with mind you on his trip to the United States? Now in the old days, I think maybe all major news outlets would have sent someone with him. It's not the case anymore. And Ross, do you think the KMT was cringing at Mars' comments, or do you think it was just sitting there? Oh, it's okay. He'll just say that over there. It depends what, what what day, what time of day, and which person at the Guomindang you ask, because ultimately, the Guomindang's policy for China-Taiwan relations is still the 1992 consensus, regardless of how they try to avoid saying so, both domestically as well as uh, when they're overseas, when they're visiting Washington. And we saw that when uh, Party Chairman Zhu visited Washington in June of 2022, and then when Ho visited Washington in, in September of this year. They really try to avoid saying it. You got to sort of you know grab them by the neck and shake them, and then they'll say, yes, 92 consensus 
is still our policy. So to the extent 92 consensus is the Guomindang candidate's policy or the party's policy, then they shouldn't uh, be cringing if Ma Ying-jeou says the same thing when Ma visits the United States or when he meets foreign visitors here in Taiwan or interviews with uh, foreign media. And of course, Ross, you told me prior to Mr. Ma's visit to America... He was wasting his time popping off there for a short period of time and should possibly stay there for a bit. Well, if he wants to convince more people that his conception of China-Taiwan relations are better, then, yeah, he should spend more time uh, talking to policymakers or scholars in the U.S., not just do this kind of short in-and-out trip with the kids that he brought with him. I, you know, I, I guess he sees himself as some kind of grandfatherly figure now, with, and he's taking youngsters, you know, people at university age, on these trips. Uh, it's just a small group. I mean, he's not saving the children of, or, or the youth of Taiwan by doing this. And he's reaching a limited audience. As I said a few minutes ago, the audiences he met with, National Council on U.S.-China Relations, they have their fixed view. You know, They want more dialogue, and they want to get along with China. Heritage is increasingly uh, you know, favoring tough policies on China. And Brookings, which some people might say is middle of the road, but I would say uh, they're also moving in the direction of being tough on China because at the moment, that's, that's what the flavor is, and that's where the money is as well. If you want to get money from uh, governments, uh, you're probably going to get more money by being tough on China than you're going to get money uh, saying we need to get along with China. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and officials from Taiwan and Canada this week announced the completion of negotiations on a bilateral deal to boost foreign investment. Now, according to the Office of Trade Negotiations here in Taiwan, if ratified, the deal will be beneficial for Taiwanese small and medium-sized enterprises who want to expand their investment presence in Canada. And it also supports Taiwan's goal of achieving net zero transformation. Now, the Office of Trade Negotiations also says the deal will be signed once administrative procedures are completed, including legal reviews of the text. And Taiwan's top trade negotiator, John Dung, also told reporters this week that the aim is to sign the deal hopefully before the end of the year. Now, Dung also said that the agreement will help Taiwan's bid to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership as Canada holds the rotating chair next year. So, Ross, obviously it's a good deal for local businesses and Canadian businesses. But, I mean, Mr Dung, maybe he's, he's wishing something too far there when it comes to the CPTPP. We don't know if it's a good deal. Have we seen the text yet, Gavin? I'm just assuming it is, Ross, because he said so. Well, He's a lovely guy. I'm sure it's not a bad deal, but I don't know if it's a good deal either because uh, Canada is pretty open to foreign investment. Uh, it's not a free trade agreement, so it's kind of like that U.S.-Taiwan initiative on 21st century trade. You know, It's a lot of fluffy stuff about, as you mentioned, uh, we'll cooperate on net zero. You know, we'll, we'll pass stronger laws on the environment or labor protection. Um, but... Uh, anything that's not a free trade agreement, the utility is is somewhat limited. You know, if there if there's clauses in there about investment protection, uh, uh, Canada is not going to nationalize the investments of Taiwan companies. And I mean, that wasn't really a risk to begin with. 
so uh, absent seeing the text, and if it's not a free trade agreement, there's probably limited utility. It's more just for political, uh, you know, to say that Canada and Taiwan can sign agreements just like just as if Taiwan is a sovereign country like any other sovereign country, no matter how many times Canada denies that. Uh, and as far as the CPTPP. Uh, first of all, you know, Canada might be in charge or, or the rotating chair now, but that, that'll wear off at some point uh, and it'll rotate to a different country. And uh, uh, you know, it's, there's just no signals from other CPTPP members that they're going to advance Taiwan's uh, membership application at any point. And it requires consensus of the members. So it only takes one. Uh, it only takes China to whisper to one CPTPP member that we, we'd like to at least let China in before Taiwan or just don't let both of us in, but don't let Taiwan in before you let China in. You know, like I said, it just takes one CPTPP member, and there's several candidates uh, that might raise an objection to Taiwan entering before China or entering at all. Uh, so this is more, again, of a, it's just kind of a political statement to, to the current go- Taiwan government. It certainly helps the Taiwan government uh, going into the election campaign to say, you know, we, we're better at foreign relations because we were able to sign a trade agreement uh, it's with Canada, even though it's not a free trade agreement. Uh, it's a non-free trade trade agreement. Uh, so it's more political grandstanding than anything else. Well, I, I I think that such an agreement is a it's, it's important. Uh, there is a lot of concern in Taiwan about uh, Taiwan's foreign investment uh, investment uh, in the United States, but also in Germany. Uh, we've seen people asking and wondering why not investing and building more factories in Taiwan. Um, investment relationships um, expand cross cross-border economic activity, then this is something people need to understand as these long-term relationships are mutual, mutually beneficial by nature. So to put it into perspective, consider shifting of, of upstream capacity to often, you know, that often accompanies those such investment. These large investments not only boost firms involved, but also benefit companies in Taiwan and other countries. So doing more investment, more trade with Canada, India, will also benefit Taiwan. So when it comes to uh, joining a larger, uh, much larger uh, trade agreement, uh, the concern is is a bit different because Taiwan was able to negotiate with with Canada, um, the United States. The the discussions are going well, but you need to discuss with every member, and there is just one member that the the government uh, won't, and uh, the Chinese government won't be willing to discuss with Taiwan. And because of that, discussing an eventual participation in that big picture it's 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 really too early to discuss unless I, I, i'm going to be more emphatic I, yeah. I think there's very little chance taiwan yeah. gets into the cptpp yeah. anytime soon and uh i think china is just going to like i said before they're just going to whisper to one country or two countries that are current members to object to taiwan's uh, membership before china's membership and that's that uh, there's nothing that canada or australia could do about that and we haven't really seen any substantive action by these other countries to help taiwan uh, get into the cptpp there you go there former australian prime ministers visit taiwan and say we hope you get in or former british prime ministers visit taiwan and say we hope you get in now that the uk is also uh, a member but uh 
again, I just don't see any movement uh, anytime soon on this. And there's nothing, there's no evidence to show that the that the membership application is proceeding. And looking at some rather gritty local political news this week, DPP lawmaker Chow Tien Lin issued a public apology and admitted to having an extramarital affair. Now, the apology came after photographs of Chow and a woman who has been confirmed as being a Chinese national were published earlier this week, showing them kissing in public. A few other pictures were released on an aeroplane and walking down a road and doing other things. But speaking to reporters at his office in Kaohsiung, Chow said his wife was aware of the affair and forgave him and that... the the same evening, he issued another statement saying he will not be seeking re-election in January's legislative election. Now, the revelations concerning Chow's personal life were quickly pounced on upon by the opposition lawmakers who accused him of being unfit to serve as, well, a lawmaker. And they also claimed that his girlfriend being Chinese and being allowed to enter Taiwan under the guise of a medical-related visit. Well, there was questions about that, and they also called for national security agencies to open an investigation into Chow's actions, as he did serve as the governor of the Legislative Foreign Affairs and National Defence Committee on a couple of occasions, Ross. Yeah, it's, it's certainly very worrisome uh, because he wasn't just any average legislator. As you mentioned, he was on the Foreign Affairs and National Defense Committee. He served as the convener. He'd be privy to uh, a lot of foreign affairs and national defense secrets. So I, I certainly think an uh, investigation uh, is appropriate. I'm sure he'll deny sharing with her any secrets about foreign affairs and national defense. So they were only sharing secrets about domestic affairs. Ha, ha, ha. I'm going to say you <laughs> yeah. got that one. It, yeah, it was, that yeah. was quite clever, Ross. Thank you, thank you. Nine and a half out of ten. For thank that you. One. Uh, but this is this was a safe seat, so now the DPP has to scramble to find uh, a candidate uh, to to run in his stead, and it's just hugely embarrassing, not just for him personally, but for the DPP as well. And I'll make another statement that that is critical, but applies to all the political parties because they keep running into this problem. The the Political parties in Taiwan seem to not not only have a difficulty with, they seem to be against due diligence. They, they really seem to have a problem conducting due, due diligence on their candidates, whether it's an incumbent or uh, somebody who's running for the first time uh, or is not a current office holder. They, they seem to have great difficulty asking people, do you have a criminal record? Have you cheated on your wife? Have you touched an underage boy or girl? I mean, these are just obvious things you should do with your candidates. And like I said, including your incumbents who have served several terms and whether they're running for the same seat again or if they're switching from city or county councilor to the legislator uh, seat, uh, uh, just ask, you know, is there anything we need to know about? And even coming out of the Me Too uh, uh, in which the DPP was was fingered more than the Guomindang for, for having uh, Me Too problems. Even after that, when Lai took over and he pledged, you know, I'm going to clean up, I'm going to get rid of uh, organized crime influence within the party and have serious uh, uh, procedures put in place to, to avoid or, or to report sexual harassment. Um, it, it's clear he still hasn't gone around and asked their candidates, you know, get them alone in a room and just ask them, is there anything... You need to tell me, is there anything that's going to blow up on us? You know, did, did, you, did you plagiarize? Did you have an affair? Did you drink and drive? And, and the political parties just seem to be against doing this, and then it comes back to hurt them. 
So, Dimitri, I mean, obviously, this is a bit of an embarrassment to the DPP in Chow, yeah? I mean, if he had an affair with a local woman, probably it would have been washed under the table within a week. But, of course, this woman is not a local woman. She's from China, which, of course, the DPP rouse about every damn day of the week. Well, there are ethical and national security implications to this. Uh, the relationship has again sparked worries about local politicians' political image and trust. And that's maybe the reason why the DPP also... Uh, press pressured him uh, to quit on his election bid. So Chao had built a reputation as a family man and this affair has tarnished that, that image, casting doubt on the public's trust in him and the ruling party. On the issue of transparency and honesty, the affair puts Chao's integrity into question too. It makes people wonder if he can, uh, he can be relied upon to make impartial decisions, especially when it comes to Taiwan-China relations. So, yes, that's a, that will have serious consequences. And, well, when it comes to the national security, that's going to be another, another major concern. But, Ross, what about the general public? Do you think they actually are concerned about this or they just went, oh, dear, it's another politician who played away? Probably the latter, because it, it's happened a number of times. Uh, I suppose the, the, the spouse, who's the victim here, forgiving him, uh, also... Uh, goes in the direction of less public attention, right? So if, if there was a spouse uh, saying he's a jerk and I'm going to divorce him and take him for all he's worth, uh, crying on, on TV, uh, th that that might keep the story in the news and it would get a lot of public uh, sympathy for, for her. Uh, but uh, probably because she's for, forgave him, forgiven him, uh, it, uh, it, it just doesn't really attract public attention. And of course, uh, I do genuinely believe an investigation is warranted uh, because there are blackmail and national security issues that, that are worth examining here. Uh, but given that you know, the Goldmine dog has their own problems, not just with extramarital affairs, but with their own legislators might be too close to China sometimes. Um, or Gomindang leaders. You'd be talking about a person called Ma Wen Chun there, wouldn't you? Well, she's been accused of, of revealing national security information as well related to the submarine program. We have to see how that plays out. Uh, but but I was thinking more, you know, Gomindang officials still, and especially within the last couple of years, they go to China and they participate in various kinds of forums. So, you know, the public is kind of immune to this or numb to this, uh, you know, palling around with people from China. So it would just be a bit odd for the Kuomintang to be hurling that accusation at the DPP. But they have to do something, Ross. Who has to do something, Gavin? The KMT. <laughs> well, I mean, they're going to have fun with this because you have the party that's uh, against closer relations with China, uh, one of its legislators having a very close relationship with China. You know, he was he was really into China, literally and figuratively. And we're moving on on that point. Yes, thank you very much, Ross. Anyway, finally this week, President Tsai Ing-wen on Tuesday introduced a government shortcode SMS platform. Now it's part of government efforts to combat fraud. And speaking at an event 
event marking the launch of the new system. Sides of the text message platform will combat scam text messages purporting to be sent by government agencies through cooperation with major telecom operators. Now, she also said something quite interesting there. Not that that wasn't, but this bit's more interesting. Apparently, according to the president, the island's major telecom operators filtered out nearly 7 million scam text messages and blocked over 16 million phone calls from foreign scammers in the first nine months of this year. Now, the short code SMS platform has been developed by the Ministry of Digital Affairs and it allows government ministries and agencies to send text messages with a specific and dedicated government short code of 111 to help members of the public recognise that it is actually from a government agency and not some bloke sitting somewhere in the Caribbean asking you to buy something you don't want, Ross. This has been an increasingly serious problem in in recent years. In fact, just anecdotally, in the couple of weeks before this announcement was made, I I seem to have been receiving more scam SMS text messages uh, than I had ever received. So I guess the timing was right to launch this. I I don't think it's really going to do anything as far as it's not going to scare the organized crime groups that are behind these things. Uh, I'm skeptical it's going to prevent a victim from becoming a victim. Uh, There just seems to be so many of these out there and the organized crime groups are are constantly uh, perfecting their technique. Right, they're always going to move faster than government, uh, and a lot of these people are based overseas, which makes it hard to to catch them or bring them to justice. Even though sitting in a room in the Caribbean or, or in South America, uh, there were some recent arrests in South America related to Taiwanese organized crime conducting scams, or in Southeast Asia uh, earlier they were in Europe and Africa is where they were operating from. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's difficulty in bringing these people to justice. And uh, people have to stop believing that you can make a quick buck. Because you get a message on your phone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's not the first time the government comes up with a master plan to overcome these challenges. And the, mar- the master plan usually fails. The, the question I'm just asking is, why would the government send me text messages? And why would the government have my phone number? So... If you get those messages, and why would the government get involved into this SMS master plan three months before an election? So there is always this uh, willing to to, to make things right. I understand the government is really trying to help, but the government was in charge in the first place to protect my private information, my private data. As a foreigner, it's really awkward that people are calling me and trying to sell me stuff as a foreigner, and they just don't even know that I'm a foreigner. How did they get my contact information? That's because the telecom companies here, apparently, Ross, have a habit of selling people's information. Well, it's state-owned companies. Well, you, you could ask them to delete your phone number from the database, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, our information is not as private, often is not as private as we think it is. Um, and they'll... I guess that's okay because that's part of having a healthy economy and economic activity. You know, the consumer products companies need to be able to reach the consumers. Um, we as consumers just have to be smarter. And, and as I said before, you know, people think they can make a quick buck because they you know they get the you know give me a dollar and I'll give you back two dollars tomorrow kind of scam message. Uh, you know, people need to be smarter as well. Uh, so I'm sympathetic to victims, especially when it's you know o- older folks. Um, but uh, uh, people do need to just just delete the damn thing and stop thinking you can make a quick buck. I must admit, in the recent years, I have seen a drop off 
of dodgy scam phone calls and texts that I have received. So possibly mm. it depends on your telecoms operator. Maybe. Could be a point. Could be. Uh, as I said, I, I've been receiving more uh, SMS text messages in, in, say, the last few weeks. That might have been me. Because I was, in, I was in a bar the other night and I wrote your phone number on the toilet wall. Oh, okay. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I'll find a way to exact revenge. <laughs> and that note, we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week for this week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And I'm not telling you which toilet his phone number is on. And also by Dimitri Budas. It was great to be here. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.